You're listening to Ground Truth, the podcast that brings you insights from the brightest minds in AI, ML, and data science. Join members of the Arthur team as we sit down with the field's leaders and luminaries to talk about topics both trending and timeless. We'll explain groundbreaking research, share unfiltered opinions, and answer questions you didn't even know you had about the theoretical and practical applications of AI and ML technology. Whether you're an executive, a student, a policy wonk, a researcher, or anywhere in between, we hope this podcast will teach you something you didn't know or give you a perspective you hadn't considered. Recorded live from Arthur's New York City headquarters. We're really excited to launch Ground Truth, Arthur's semi-weekly speaker series where we'll bring in some of the brightest minds from AI, ML, policy, the tech ecosystem writ large, uh, investing, and others. Stay tuned for that. This is a space, obviously, that doesn't move very quickly. Glacial, really. When I think about what AI and ML and policy around it looked like 10 years ago, I often question my life as a professor, which actually is why I'm here in industry now, having left that job to join this space where nothing ever moves. Well, except for you know every week or every day where we see it in the news. So today to kick this off, we're really lucky to have an expert in an area that I think is really undergoing an inflection point between academic research and industry and also governmental adoption. So we're honored, honestly, to have Rachel Cummings here. She's an associate professor at Columbia University, homed in the IE and operations research department, but obviously with a strong affiliation with computer science, AI, and ML. And she also co-leads the Cybersecurity Research Center there, which I believe is in the Data Science Institute, which is another one of these sort of multidisciplinary tech-focused institutes. Prior to that, she was an assistant professor at Georgia Tech, and prior to that, had a PhD from Caltech and a number of other listed accomplishments from Northwestern and, I believe, USC. So, from the academic side, we love accolades. Who doesn't? She's gotten all the sort of big ones that a mid-career researcher would get. NSF Career Award, DARPA Young Faculty Award, Apple Privacy Preserving Awards, JPMC, Google, Mozilla, et cetera. I can keep listing these, but uh, we're not here for that. Her work focuses on, and you'll learn more about this tonight, data privacy. And so that is a broad space that combines machine learning, economics, econ CS, optimization, statistics, public policy, communication, and so on. So you'll hear a little bit tonight as well about her work in the policy space. She's on the advisory board of, for example, the ACM, U.S. Public Policy Council's Privacy Committee, and their Future of Privacy Forum. So without further ado, we're going to have a, a bit of a fireside chat now, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. So for all those hardball questions that I've planted in the audience, hold those to the end. <laughs> We'd just love to hear maybe a quick intro to yourself, like what led you to Columbia, to econ and machine learning, and to differential privacy writ large. Hi. Thank you, John, for perhaps the like kindest and friendliest intro that I've ever received, uh, truly. It's such a pleasure being here. As John mentioned, my work is sort of at the interface of like academia, industry, policy, and so I'm excited that I could be here tonight and share all three of those. One disclaimer that I always give in my talks is that I have a minor speech impairment, so if I pause briefly, I'm probably not just uh, daydreaming. <laughs> I am funny. <laughs> There's some promises earlier. Yeah, so there was never a grand plan. It would be an easier and more glorious tale of my life if I said, ah, yes, this was the vision and I did it. I just kind of always liked math and I just kept doing what I thought was cool. I also believe that I'm fundamentally unemployable. <laughs> so I just kept getting degrees so I didn't have to get jobs. <laughs> 
walks away. So we're like, I graduated as a math and econ major in the middle of the 2010 financial crisis. So this was like not a good time to be looking for jobs with that skill set. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just go to grad school. I wasn't even super sold on it, but I figured worst case, I'll just drop out with a free master's and like, that'll be cool. In the end, I liked it. Turns out I like doing research. I really like thinking in this economic mindset about people being very strategic. I know what that says about me, but I like thinking about strategic manipulation of a system. Um, that also says something about you. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and so I came to privacy actually via that path. I've worn so many different hats, math and econ and CS and machine learning. And then I went into operations research because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. And that felt like a very nice convex combination of the three as I was math, econ, CS, OR. Turns out that's like its own other field. And so like I started thinking about privacy in terms of people's incentives to make sure people don't learn about their data and that sort of naturally led me to to the privacy questions cool yeah that's a that's a motivational path <laughs> no, that's, that's a great answer and actually you touched on something that I think leads into the next question which is you have a very multidisciplinary background across tech and then increasingly communication and policy as well which we see this all the time in AIML as this this continues to eat the world is we have people who were trained outside of computer science who are entering into the field we have people who were trained inside of computer science who are now what I would say exiting the traditional field so a lot of movement going around. If somebody wanted to, say, move into this space, and that could be either academic or it could be like policy comms, any advice? Yeah, good. I have notes because it's actually this is a nice question, but a hard one. So I think I would give totally different advice if you wanted to do the sort of like, you know, technical algorithmic stuff versus policy stuff. I really come from a computer science algorithmic background, and so this is a new exciting venture for me. On the academic algorithmic side, be good at math and no algorithms, no probability and no statistics. One very nice thing about the field of differential privacy is it's like very, very modular algorithmically. So there's really, there's like three algorithms, like maybe four. And just like everything is built upon that. And so it's like very, very simple to really go into it. And you can like learn it in a week, two weeks. And then you can think about how do you build complex algorithms from these very simple building blocks. And so it isn't a like scary field to learn. On the communication and policy side, I would say this is an interdisciplinary field and just like get really good collaborators who are different from you. It's so valuable and this is what I love about our team. So we have like myself, differential privacy experts, we have a cryptographer, we have an HCI survey design person, we have a person who is more who has more traditional computer science and privacy, and we have a person who is getting a joint PhD, computer science and also in communication. And so that's such a unique team and we like couldn't have done it if we didn't have this diverse skill set. Yeah, awesome answer. And I think that that'll generalize also into, as I mentioned, things that are as if anyone would not want to move into differential privacy, but other sorts of fields that touch, touch society that are coming from tech. Yeah. Really cool. So speaking about policy, any advice for present day policymakers? Oh, I have so many opinions. So most privacy policy, like I would say all, but I haven't read the text of all privacy laws. And so I'll hedge and say most, but like possibly all. Do not tell us what are we allowed to implement algorithmically to be compliant with the laws. And so if I want to run a new differential private algorithm, epsilon equals one, is this GDPR compliant? 
I don't know, it's not clear. And so I would say to policymakers, write policy that really like integrates like a technical, technical best practices and like a technical state of the art into the laws and also make it make it easier for companies who want to be compliant, but they also but they also want to innovate to be sure they can innovate legally. Yeah, it's a great answer. I, I think that this has been like kicked around a little bit as this idea of like a sandbox where you're allowed to sort of play around at the edges of the law because the law isn't quite there yet, so long as you open up a bit to regulators as well. And so basically if you misstep of what they see as a the law, they'll slap you on the wrist but not put you out of business, that kind of thing. So do you see that as like a valuable step forward? Yeah, yeah. And I think this, this is why we don't really see differential privacy in critical arenas for things like you know, healthcare, medicine, is because there are very, very strong privacy laws regulating this and you like do not want to violate them, which means you like don't want to innovate and you don't want to risk doing something wrong, but there's also like a huge opportunity there that's kind of being, being missed. Cool. Well, if you could change one thing about this general field, we could do differential privacy or plus policy or even econ CS, really whatever the spiciest answer you want to give is, what, <laughs> what would it be? Um, two things actually help be bold. One is just like a diversity. And this is true very broadly across everything STEM is we don't have enough diversity in the pipeline. So many people are working hard to like change this, but this is maybe a five year, 10 year, 20 year, and I would love to see more of these initiatives to really bring in new voices, new people. So that's one. Another one is particularly in the space of like a differential privacy, I would love to see this being taught earlier and more broadly. And you see this both in industry as well as higher ed is I want to recruit people to do PhDs with me who can do like a differential privacy. But because there are like very, very few undergraduate level like a differential privacy classes in the country, in the world, very few people are even kind of exposed to it. And I think the same thing is true in kind of industry as well. I'm like extremely impressed with this room, but there might be some selection bias here. Very smart, very technical, highly educated people who just like don't, don't know this stuff. And so like I would love there to be more sort of education out there. We're all very smart people, but if you don't know the specifics of the definition and the parameter tuning and the and implications of the epsilon, you're not really equipped to use this stuff in practice. And I would love to see more of that. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and coming back to your, your, your response to an earlier question, with the relatively small number of obviously very delicate and, and detailed building blocks for differential privacy, one could imagine you know, math cross-communications or these sort of technically-minded but also communications-minded you know, junior researchers and junior practitioners learning about differential privacy, not in a silo, but you know, without the full computer science mm -hmm. curriculum, alongside policy or communication as well, which I think would be pretty cool. Oh, yes, I would love that. <laughs> Two final questions. One is predictions for the next one to three years, and the other is going to be predictions for the next 10 years before going to audience Q&A. So would love to see what's overhyped right now. Do you have some hopeful breakthroughs? Where can we see business impact or policy impact immediately? Anything like that. Yeah, so in your questions, one of them was what is most overhyped? And I had written, if you had asked me like three years ago, I would say like a deep learning. It's like totally overhyped. Um, but now, but now I like, they couldn't have been more, more wrong. <laughs> I admit that. So maybe I don't want to speak as to what it's overhyped because I'm sure that I would be, be wrong. One... <laughs> Like, couldn't be more wrong there. Um, one, one thing that I think is a really 
important and big area of growth is doing like a differentially private synthetic data. Like this would just make so many things easier is if companies can just hand over data sets to consultants, researchers, partners, even competitors, and be sure those data are not going to leak whatever they want to protect. And we don't really have good tools for, for that right now. We have, we have like a deep learning, which again, like, no, I'm not, <laughs> which, which works, works like a surprisingly well, but there's no you know, theoretical performance guarantees. And we also have like a super exponential time algorithms that give good performance guarantees, but you would like never want to run them in practice. So we don't really have stuff in the middle ground that's efficient and is guaranteed to work well. And this just seems like a huge, huge opportunity. And it's a really hard technical question, but it's like too big to ignore. That's awesome, yeah. And then the second one, so moving out to maybe 10 years or you know pick some n greater than or equal to 10 yeah. any you know biggest opportunities you know if you were say just getting into the field things to focus on and also some risks and things to be mindful mm, of good so i think so i think in general and this is maybe advice that i would have for people getting into the field as well is sort of like a look at the needs of practice. I think that especially like as an academic, it's way too easy to sort of be in my ivory tower and think like, ah, yes, like uh, this model is the right one. Um, but if that's not the model that is real, and if that doesn't match, match like a practical needs, you can write the best paper ever and like no one will care. So I think looking into practice and what are the needs and in kind of industry, what do people wish they could do privately but they can't right now? That seems like a, the right question. One of the big things is of course like a privacy accuracy trade-off and this is a frontier that is kind of always being pushed as you see more algorithms doing better and better composition methods and so on. One of the reasons companies are somewhat averse to using differential privacy is becomes as some loss of performance. And we're trying to make that, that, that loss as small as possible, but, but making it smaller and smaller is gonna have a huge impact. I think the other dimension is like inspired this work actually is thinking about how do we make differential privacy something that companies can just take off the shelf and use use and say like, yes, I'm doing it. And that includes convincing their lawyers that it's okay. And that involves convincing policy makers to write laws that make lawyers say, say it's okay. This involves building open source high quality libraries so that if you are a smaller company and you can't afford a privacy team, you don't need one because there exists a library. Um, things like this, as well as these educational efforts, how do you pick Epsilon, how do you tune Epsilon? I think that that is sort of a suite of questions that once they're answered, differential privacy will become the norm. And these are the barriers that are that are like stopping it now, but might take five or 10-ish years to address. Any specific risks come to mind or like things to look out for? So this is not necessarily a like long-term risk, but this is like in general, a thing to look out for when you are using differential privacy is it is very, very subtle. Things like this like epsilon matters and things like you no know, composition across analyses of the same database matter and even things like pre-processing our data set can like possibly leak information and so it's like surprisingly subtle even though even though like the building blocks are simple putting them together can be subtle and and doing it without thinking through 
the implications of these choices, it may lead you to, let's say, not have the privacy guarantees that you think you're having. Got it, got it. Well, that's all the questions that I have. And I want to say thank you for coming. Thank you for the candid back and forth here. And you know, before we open the stage up to the audience here, maybe a quick clap. Uh, to <laughs> Great. So I believe if you're here in the in the in the offices here at, at, at Arthur here in New York, please if you're asking a question, do take the mic. And if you're on Zoom, I think we're somebody's maybe reading chat and we can ask. Oh, yeah. If you're on Zoom, feel free to to ask a question via text. So any any questions? Yeah, we just have one from the chat. This is from Piotr. He says, differential privacy's goal is to not have to reason about background knowledge or prior belief but people think about privacy in a manner that requires reasoning about priors, which you have demonstrated in the manager feedback example. Is it possible that differential privacy is just not compatible with what people want from privacy? Ooh, a spicy question. <laughs> That's why I didn't come here in person. <laughs> exactly, <exciting. laughs> So, So I think this sort of gets to my point about looking at the needs of practice. And I think the needs of practice have really evolved since like 2006. So this privacy notion was invented by a team of like cryptographers who are used to thinking about worst case adversarial attacks and like protecting against those. And it's good. And we want those kind of privacy notions. But on the other hand, especially now, modern day data era, we really want to get value out of our data. And sometimes like a protecting against things in the worst case requires adding too much noise and that will harm the analysis and the results. So I think this is a very, very delicate balance. You can like relax some of those privacy assumptions as you can say, we're not gonna be doing things in the worst case anymore. We're gonna be doing things in the average case based on my like a domain knowledge, and then you can probably add much less noise. The question is, is are you sacrificing something on the privacy side? What if your domain knowledge is wrong? Or what if it's outdated? What if it was correct, and then people are different now, and you're gonna get like a different data, and those like assumptions no longer hold? Are you like failing to provide privacy in some meaningful way? And I don't really have an answer to this. I think this is maybe a kind of like you no know, area of growth in the future is finding something in that delicate space of kind of still providing formal strong privacy guarantees that also incorporate things like you know domain knowledge while still providing rigorous privacy guarantees and giving good accuracy. And I don't have a good answer, but I suspect this is a highly complex question. Yeah, but I can add a little color to that as well. I a lot of what you said also resonates with like adversarial machine learning and adversarial attacks writ large, which is A, they're delicate, and B, if you have underlying drift in whatever you trained on versus what you're testing on, basically all these guarantees go out the window. And a question to ask in both of these areas, right, is like, is it the right thing to do to be focusing on the absolute 100% worst case, be you know, totally robust to everything when that's going to probably kill accuracy in many, many settings, or you know, understanding when it's okay, like that trade-off. And so we see that in adversarial ML a lot in practice. It's interesting to hear that here yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. I think this is a sort of domain specific 
question of kind of what type of privacy guarantees are gonna be okay to provide. Are there some cases where it's okay to provide weaker guarantees and there's some cases where it's definitely not okay. So I think modeling both what's known as well as what type of adversaries are you trying to like protect against. And it becomes more application specific then. But yeah, but I think this is like an important question going, going forward. And this is where this privacy accuracy fr frontier becomes important is you can like push further on the accuracy side. And the question is like, what are you losing on the privacy side? And is that an acceptable trade-off? Cool. Questions from chat? Questions from the, the audience here? I think I saw a hand. Yes, in the back there. Hi. So I'm the founder of an NLP startup, and the field has always struggled to contend with cryptography. And that's even when we understood the algorithms, right? TF-IDF, BM25. And now the proliferation of LLMs, albeit closed source LLMs, in my mind, compound the cooperation of the two. And sorry if I missed this, if you talked about it, but how do you see the two areas cooperating in the future, like cryptography and closed source LLMs, especially as each model is a step function more challenging to grasp than the last. Yeah, so I will answer a slightly different question that is like more inside of my expertise because I don't know as much about LLMs and how they work. I mean, you know, something, something like a GPUs, something, something deep learning. <laughs> Stochastic gradient descent, that propagation, these are, that's an extent of my knowledge. But it can address the question, how do I see like a cryptography working with like a differential privacy? And in general, the fact that we have many complex pieces of like a privacy protection. And what's sort of underlying all these like a privacy guarantees is that we are assuming perfect crypto. And the fact that we say people are going to give their data from their brains or their devices into some server that's going to hold it and protect it, well, that assumes you have secure channels and, and secure storage and all of this. And this is sort of what we like began to see as we talked about these, is it possible that a particular data leak might happen? And we realized a lot of these data leaks are sort of not differential privacy specific, but rather they're, they're part of a holistic security approach. And it's like, as a kid, if you see all these breakfast cereal commercials and they advertise how it's so great, and then like at the end, they're like, it's a part of this complete breakfast and it requires like toast and juice and all of this. And that's what like a differential privacy is. It's one part of a complete privacy breakfast. And, <laughs> and you can't have it alone. You have to have all the other parts. And there is definitely a sort of like research thrust understanding how we combine differential privacy with these tools because a lot of the initial work assumed perfect crypto. And now we have to think algorithmically, how do we integrate differential privacy with things secure MPC? We need algorithms for that. How, how do we do it? And so there's work in this direction. I think there's like a partial answer now, but this is very much like an ongoing work. Questions from chat, questions from Meetspace? Yeah, maybe one more question. Uh, hi, first, thank you, Dr. Cummings, for your insight and your chat. It was it was really fun. 
My question is when you were structuring your research with your collaborators, were there particular industry verticals or companies that you had in mind as potential adopters of whatever, like nutrition labels or communication techniques, or as the research you know progresses further that you'd be potentially interested in partnering with? Ooh, I love it. I'll answer the second part first. I'm very interested in partnering with whoever whoever wants me, <laughs> email me. But really, like, like, I think this is something that is challenging for me as an academic, and I'm thrilled to be places like this, is that I like you know, spend a lot of time not in a company thinking about how do companies work and what do they need, and I sometimes imagine things, and they're sometimes right, and they're sometimes wrong. And so it's way better to talk to people who are kind of like actually do, doing this. And one challenge is that companies are sometimes hesitant to like tell people about their inner privacy workings for very understandable reasons. And so I love opportunities like this to kind of hear what do companies want? And I'm, and I'm very open to hearing things to the extent that various NDAs allow of things like, oh man, I really wish there was a tool for doing this. That'd be fabulous. You know, tell me if you want these, because this can be of mutual benefit as well. So this is actually a great closeout because clearly you're not going to ask these pre-NDA questions live on a live stream <laughs> or here in the audience. So I'll say maybe three things. One is feel free to ask those questions obviously offline or after this talk. Two is thank you very much, Dr. Rachel Cummings, for, for coming in to this place, which is Arthur, the AI performance company, you might recall. And so with that, this concludes our first Ground Truth speaker series. So let's maybe thank Rachel again and call it a day. That's it for this episode of Ground Truth. Thanks so much for listening. To make sure you're updated about future episodes, give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're interested in attending one of our live events, follow us on Twitter at It's Arthur AI. Until next time.